you will, grab a Bible. Let's head over to Luke chapter 7 this morning. Just a bit of a a catch-up. Jesus has just preached the Sermon on the Plain, not the Mount, but the Plain. Uh, And our passage this morning is going to be picking up just as Jesus leaves there and returns to the city of Capernaum, which is a city on the the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It also happens to be the the hometown of Matthew, uh, one of the uh, apostles that are traveling with him. Uh, And in this text, we're going to we're going to see something about Christ. We're going to see the compassion. We're going to see the concern that he has for people, that Jesus has for people. As we live in this world that is sin broken and full of suffering and full of sickness. And so we're going to see that. Uh, so if you found your way over to Luke chapter 7, I would ask that you follow along with your eyes as I, I read aloud. And you follow along with your mind, your focus. Uh, and we'll begin reading in, in chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy, worthy to have you do all this for him. For he loves our nation. He he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Lord God, you have placed this passage in the Holy Scriptures. You've recorded it for your church in every generation. This morning we ask that you'd push away from our thoughts all distractions, that you would enlighten our minds this morning to understand what it is we've just read, and to learn what you will teach us today from your Holy Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're just going to jump right into this. We don't learn the man's name. We have nothing to call him, but but we do know that he's a centurion. That's a a title, right? It's a a title that's given in the Roman army, meaning that he's he's an officer. This is the same army that's actually an oppressive enemy of the Jews at this time. Now, you think about that title, centurion, you might notice that word cent right at the very beginning, right? Centurion. It comes from this Latin word that just means a hundred. Uh, in fact, that's the reason that when, when we have a, a penny, we often call it what? A cent, right? Because it's one one hundredth of a dollar. And in this case, in, the, in this word, what it means is that there's, there's roughly a hundred soldiers that are under his command at, at any time. And for you army folks, I, I did a little research to try to make sense, right? Contextualizing. Um, a centurion is the, is the equivalent rank in the U.S. Army as a captain. That means something to you. 
And so this centurion has this slave, as it's technically uh, put in the, in the Greek, but as the ESV translated, uh, a servant. And it's a right translation. Uh, and, and the servant is sick. He's about to die. That's the, the expectation. If something's not done, that's where this is going to go. And, and you see, having a, a servant it was very common in first century Roman. That, that's not rare. However, having this sort of concern for your servant, that is rare. We learn in verse 2 here that, that the servant was highly valued. And, and don't think in terms of financial value there. Rather, it was highly valued, by, by the way our text says it, by him, by the centurion himself. There, there's personal value between them or for him. You know, just like your, your spouse or your children or your parents or your friends, right? They're highly valued to you. Not financially, I, I hope, but, but personally. See, the, the Greek word translated high, highly valued here is at times actually translated as precious. Really? Just the same way that we use that word, that, that the servant was precious to him. He was important to him. Now, now, at this point, it's fair to assume that he's tried other ways to, ser- to heal his servant, right? Uh, this wasn't the first thing he does. But, but now he's desperate and he's reached the end of the line. Now, now, you and I, we've been there or we know someone who's been there. Well, you're just not sure what else you can do. You're not sure what else you can do for medical issues. Or you're not sure what else you can do to encourage someone to have faith in Christ. Or you're not sure what else you can do to to bring peace to a broken relationship. It's just out of your control. And what do we do when we come to that point when there's nothing left to do? Well, if we we haven't already done so, we we pray. I, I hope we pray, right? In other words, we we take our needs to the Lord of Lords and we ask him to do what only he can do. That's what this man is doing here. Only he's doing it the way the army does things, right? He's using the army method. He he delegated it to someone else. So he sends his friends to go off in front of, you know, for, for him. And these friends are also Jewish elders and they make this request to Jesus for him. And boy, did they make a good presentation on his behalf. I mean, first of all, what an interesting thing that, that they're not asking Jesus, can you do this, right? There's no question involved here. It's, you know, not if you can help. It's just assume that he can. And so they're simply making a case now that the man that, they, that needs the healing and the man who's asking for the healing, rather, is, is worthy of being helped. It, it reminds me a little bit um, when John Dunning and I uh, got into a car and we drove down to Texas to meet with this mysterious donor that we knew nothing about to see if he'd be willing to help fund something that we were calling at the time the Manhattan Project, which uh, as a side note, every time we'd mention that name to someone, they would be like, do you know what the Manhattan Project is, right? But yes, we know. Um, anyway, a church plant and an RUF campus ministry. And then we were going down there to meet with him because our presbytery has so little financial means uh, that we had to find the bulk of our support outside of Kansas, outside of the presbytery. And we were praying to the Lord to provide for this work to begin in Manhattan. And it reminds me of this passage also because we weren't questioning whether the guy could do it. It wasn't whether he had the means to do it. It was never a question. We only wondered, would he do it? Could, you know, would he be willing to do it? But it also reminds me, because on some level, John and I were trying to convince this man that we were worthy of his support. See, it's, it's hard not to fall back on, on that mentality. 
to, to try to just prove the, the value of something like that. We, we have this prospectus as we're pleading with him for support and, you know, asking him, here's why this is a worthy cause. Here's why this is all worthy. And as you hopefully have figured out by this point, the Lord did provide for us through his generosity of this donor and, and, and many others. But uh, there's something about just pleading with someone that, that makes us or, or causes us or in some reason we, we want to just show the worthiness of, of being helped. I think misinformed people often begin their prayers this way, prayers of request to God, right? By, by telling him this, this litany of things they've done for God, why, why they're worthy. God, I'm, a, I'm at church almost every week. I, I've been a member of this church for this many years. I give financially. I've been faithful. And, and, and as we're going to see later, that's, that's not what God's looking for. And we'll see that. But, but do you see how the, the Jewish elders here plead the case of this man's worthiness? He gives two reasons, right? Um, they, they've come to Jesus, and, and first they say to the centurion that he is worthy to have you do this for them. And, and in their own words, the two reasons they give are these. First, because he loves our nation. Well, that doesn't seem like much, does it? But you have to understand, he, he's not an Israelite. He, he's a Roman. And when they say our nation, they're talking about Israel, right? The, uh, the people of God. Being a, 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 even though he's a Roman soldier, he's, he's actually for us, is what he's trying to say. And the other reason they say that he's worthy is that he's the one who built our synagogue. He's not just said he's for us, but he's actually proven it with his actions. He's built us a place to worship God. He's, he's given his money. Most likely, the, the centurion we're talking about here was what the Jews called a God-fearer. Right? And that had a bit of a technical term for it, meaning, meaning here's a man who's a Gentile, not a Jew, ethnically. He hasn't grown up in that. And, and yet here he is, he's worshiping the God of Israel, but he hasn't yet been, received the sign of the covenant. He hasn't been circumcised. He hasn't become an absolute full convert into Judaism, even though he's supportive that way, even though he worships the Lord. So anyway, the Jewish elders have had a terrible view of what warrants God's favor. See, people often continue to do that today when it comes to, to terms of salvation, right? Uh, you know, forgiveness of our sin. They believe that uh, if people live their life most, most good or very good, then somehow you're worthy of salvation. L listen, God requires perfect righteousness, which means that no one is worthy besides the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No one. Salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end. Grace is unmerited, always unmerited. Every time the grace of God is bestowed upon anyone, it is bestowed upon someone who is unworthy. There is no exception to that. I mean, you, you get that? I mean, truly, every single one of us ever, ever existing, not just the seven billion people on the planet today, but had ever existed are, are unworthy of the grace of God. You and I are, are unworthy just like Hitler and Mussolini. Not as evil, I hope, I hope, but, but just as unworthy of the grace of God. You, you see, we, we never receive forgiveness of our sin because of our own merit. We, we receive, if we receive grace, it is always because of the mercy of God. Or we might say it this way, the grace of God always comes by mercy, not merit. Jesus doesn't respond to their words here, but 
He goes with the elders, right? He's walking with them towards the centurion's house. And somebody within this group, right, must have run ahead. And it doesn't say it in the text, but you can imagine something along the lines of him showing up. Jesus is coming. We told him how worthy you are. And here he comes. Right? So somehow he knows this. And you kind of wonder, is he mortified now? Is he embarrassed that they said that? Something about that really rubbed him the wrong way. He's not, he doesn't feel like this is going down the way he wanted to. And so he sends another group of friends to meet Jesus and the apostles and anyone else who's probably following him along the way. And they bring with them a new message. And while the elders, you know, had sung the man's praises, he now gives this message. Tell Jesus, you know, don't trouble coming to my house. And he gives this simple reason. He says, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you enter my house. I'm not worthy for that. Isn't this the moment that you actually kind of like this guy? We're, we're, we're seeing this genuine humility. And we can't deny humility, true, genuine humility, is, it's beautiful. He knows the worthiness of Jesus, and he knows himself to be unworthy. This man sees himself with the clarity of looking into an unclouded mirror, and he sees himself as he really is. He knows his own sin. He knows his corrupt thoughts. He knows his unholy actions. He, he even knows his deep sinfulness that, that has never come to the surface for others to see. Including those elders that are singing his praises. He's not self-righteously comparing himself to others. But he knows his own, the depth of his own sinfulness. And what about you? How do you view yourself? How do you view Jesus? And, and I mean this. I think sometimes we're like, yeah, Jesus is holy and I'm not. And we're like, this is me and this is Jesus. But it's more something like this, right? This is me and this is Jesus. Huge gap. I mean, seriously, do you know that you're a sinner? Like a real, genuine, real sinner. Who's truly unworthy of being in the presence of God who is holy. Do you really see that in your natural state, that's the reality? Can you say with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. Right? Can you say to God, God, my best works, they're filthy rags compared to your holiness. I say that because we, we often think we're, we're, we're coming with more cleanliness than we, than we realize, right, initially. I, I can remember seeing this, this TV scene once where uh, a guy walks into this hotel room and it all looks incredibly clean at first. Um, and, and then he gets out this black light, which if you know anything about black light, it's going to make all the filth in the room glow in a way that you don't want to know about. Uh, in other words, it gives you a true view of cleanliness of that room. And he shines it on the wall, and there's just filth everywhere. Right? It, it reveals what's truly there. The room's not as clean as, as he had hoped or as it had initially appeared. See, that's the reality of our lives. But, but the other reality is this, that, that Jesus is perfectly and uniquely holy. And Jesus redeems the unworthy. Jesus cleans the filthy. Jesus saves not by merit, but by grace. And that's a wonderful thing when we understand our, current, our, our natural state of uh, being. 
Philip Ryken helps us summarize this when he, when he writes this. He says, God gives grace to the humble. And when we admit that we do not even deserve to be saved, we are ready to receive God's mercy in Christ. We are ready to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am not even worthy to come into your presence. But I believe the promise of your word that in the blood of your cross, there is grace for me. See, the centurion feels unworthy for Jesus to come into his home. And yet he knows that Jesus is the person he needs to be speaking to. He's still seeking Jesus' help. And so he gives this intriguing explanation of authority. He explains the way that he gives commands and soldiers, well, they obey the commands. It, it, it seems real simple. In our day and age, we, we tend to associate authority as a, a negative thing. We associate it with uh, abuse of power or oppressive power or as shackles that somehow are, are uh, you know, against your autonomy, your freedom. And because of that view, it's a, it's a real shame because we, we miss to see just how beautiful authority structures really are for us. Now, I want you to look at verse 8. There, there's something very interesting here in regards to authority structures. Notice he, he doesn't just point out the authority under him. He could have, right? I have soldiers. I tell them what to do and they do it. But, but there's that little phrase there. He's showing that there is indeed an authority over him. He shows it both directions. He's making this connection that those who are under his authority obey him because of the authority that's actually over him. He says it this way. He says, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. Right? He's set under authority. You get that? Authority is derivative. If you go up the chain of authority in the Roman army, eventually you're going to get to the top. You're going to get to Caesar himself, right? Uh, so that any time, any order that the centurion is going to give to someone below him comes with the same authority as if it had been given by Caesar who's above him. And the centurion has this clear understanding then of how authority works. And, he, and he's been given a heart to see that Jesus has been divinely authorized by the Father so that even sickness will obey his command. The kind of authority we're talking about is just a crazy, crazy thing. I mean, think about it. Je Jesus has, you know, as the divine son of the divine father in union with the divine spirit, Jesus has a, a just unlimited authority. Because if Jesus desired in that moment to create a unicorn, a unicorn would exist. I think that's bizarre. I mean, am I the only one? I mean, if Jesus had desired to create Bigfoot or the Toothberry or, you know, the humble, gracious Yankee fan, then all those mythical creatures would actually exist. I'm getting my Yankee fan shaking his head. You see, Jesus has unrivaled and nearly unimaginable authority. And then there's something else that we need to see here. I want you to look. You know, if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do. Look at verse 7. The centurion reveals this great faith that he has when he says, Say the word and let my servant be healed. He sees the power of Jesus. He recognizes that Jesus is something, someone more than a mere man with something greater than just worldly authority. 
God has, has given this man eyes to see properly, and he sees Jesus as he really is. He, he's aware that the same authority that in Genesis 1-3 commands, let there be light, and light appears, the same authority can now heal the, the creation that he brought into existence. So with absolute faith, this man knows Jesus can simply say the word and his servant will be healed. Love it. He, he doesn't ask Jesus to do any signs of wonders. We're going to see people all throughout the Gospels do that, right? Pro- prove who you are. Do something mighty. Impress us. He, he doesn't ask for that. He doesn't expect Jesus to prove his power. The man's faith is, is simple and his faith gives him confidence, not in himself, but in the Lord Jesus. And that's why the centurion for us is a great model of what the response to the gospel looks like. Um, When the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 86, asks the question, what is saving faith in Jesus Christ? It gives this answer. It says, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. He he is offered to us as he is offered to us in the gospel. And and we see here in our passage, we, we, we see... That all, we see it all over Scripture, right? We, we see it in our own experience, in fact, that, that humility and faith go hand in hand. To, to genuinely trust Jesus requires humility as we are also confessing our own personal helplessness and thus our great need of a Savior to begin with. This time, Jesus does respond to the message that's come to him. In verse 9, we read this. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Only twice in all the scriptures do we see Jesus marveling at something where we're told that. And in each of those situations, they're polar opposites of each other. In Mark chapter six, verse six, uh, we're told that Jesus marveled at the unbelief. He's in his own hometown of Nazareth. And he sees the lack of faith in the people there, and he marvels. He marvels because they've had all the benefits of the covenant community. They've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been given everything in order to prepare for this. And when the Messiah is standing before them, their hearts are filled with doubts and unbelief. And he marvels at that. In our text today, Jesus marvels the opposite direction. He's, he's marveling at the centurion's faith. One reason Jesus marvels here is, is because, like I said, it's the opposite of the people in Nazareth. Here, God has given this man such mighty faith despite a childhood and a life outside the covenant blessings. A childhood without the teaching in the synagogue, without the scriptures, without the covenant community insisting in that, and without godly parents giving biblical instruction. So Jesus marvels that here this this uncircumcised Roman centurion has been given eyes of faith with so much certainty. See, it's not unlike the way that we marvel at stories today, right? When when someone comes to faith from unexpected uh, situations... These aren't better stories. They're not, you know, but, but, but they tend to be the things that make us just marvel. Right? The, the, the man who grew up in a, a, you know, dealing drugs in a rough part of the city. And then he comes to faith in Jesus. And you see such transformation in his life. We marvel at those stories. Or, or the woman in college whose dad is a well-known and antagonistic atheist. When the Lord calls her to faith, we, we marvel. We marvel because that's not what we expect. 
We marvel. Jesus may also marvel because of the wealth the centurion has. See, see, having faith, or having great wealth, rather, it can be a blessing. But it can also be a great hindrance to faith as we trust in what money can do for us. But, but here we see a, a rich man come to Jesus with faith in Jesus. See, this, this here, this is what a rich man going through the eye of a camel looks like. And so Jesus marvels. And Jesus marvels because the man's faith is so solid, solid, solid. Just say the word. His faith is so certain. Do you desire to have faith like that? I do. I I want faith like that. Always like that. I want to speak to Jesus in prayer with the same faith that he speaks to Jesus in our path. Is Jesus, say the word. No matter the situation. Say the word and my dad will get the job right that he needs. Say the word and so and so will be healed from from what they're, they're suffering. Say the word. So we don't see it in Luke's writing exactly. We, we see the healing ultimately, but not the, the rest of the story. In Matthew 8.13, uh, where this same story is recorded, Jesus actually responds to all this. And he says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus spoke in the beginning and he created the world out of nothing. Remember, light out of darkness, mankind out of dust of the ground which he created. He, he did this all with, with his word. And in this moment, we, we, we see Jesus now set the world right in the life of the servant, right? He sets the world right for a small period of time with this ultimate authority over all of creation. Jesus heals him. In a lot of ways, this is a preview for us. It's a, a preview of what Jesus will do across all of creation when, when he returns for his people, for each and every man, woman, and child who place their faith in him, in Christ. Now, I hope we learn today, or remember today, that we're not worthy of Christ, but, but Christ is worthy. And in his mercy, he calls us to look to him with faith, And to find healing, and to find rest, and to find hope, and to find salvation. Not within ourselves, our own worthiness, but in Jesus Christ and His worthiness. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, there is no one with more authority than you. No one with more power. Lord, help us to live our lives in accordance with that glorious reality. Give us faith that you have washed our scarlet sins white as snow. Give us faith that you have loved us with a love that can never be taken from us. Give us faith that you care about the details of our lives and the pains and the sorrows we experience. Lord, give us faith in Jesus so strong that we can walk through this life without fear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.